Welcome to or welcome back to another Wrong Sports episode and to another How the Year Was Won. I am once again staying in the 1920s with this next episode. I'm staying in the 1920s because of how much fun this decade was and also because of some of the changes that would come from this decade. One would be a polling system. There had been no official poll or ranking for college football since it started, but there had been other polls that came out that were not recognized or had been done by one sports writer and it was on a regional bias. An example of this was Walter Camp's All-American team, which was heavily Eastern, and he always called Eastern teams the best in college football, no matter what was happening around the country. But in 1926, a professor would come out with a polling system that would name a national champion and even award a trophy, as this was to find a true national champion. So hang out as I take you back to the 1926 college football season with the games, players, and teams that fought to be named the best in college football. But before I get to that year, make sure as always you subscribe to the channel below, share this video, share this channel with other college football fans. Okay, before I get into the season, I have to cover the polling system that would gain headlines coming into the season. Over the first four decades of college football, there would be a few cross-regional games during the regular season. I say few because of the travel and due to the fact that teams didn't play more than 10 or 11 games in a season, and it was kind of hard to do a cross-country trip at a time when airplanes were not used. This left teams with space to play teams from their region or conference with the occasional late-season an intersectional game. Example of this would be a Southern team coming up to the Northeast or Notre Dame going to USC. But there wouldn't be enough of these games. There wasn't enough time in the season for a team to be traveling all around the country. So to remedy this, Frank G. Dickinson, an economics professor at the University of Illinois, invented a system to rank colleges based upon their records and the strength of their opposition. The system was originally designated to rank teams in the Big Nine, now the Big Ten Conference, and the system was pretty simple, as it awarded 30 points for a win over a strong team, and this was based on previous seasons as well as the current. It would also give 20 points to a win over a weaker team. Losses were also awarded points as you would get 15 for a loss to a strong team and 10 for a loss to a weaker team and ties were treated as a half of a win. An average was then derived by dividing the points by games played. Soon more teams and more conferences were interested in this so instead of it being just for one conference Dickinson used this ranking for 96 teams playing in college football for the 1926 season. He would put out his final rankings at the end of the regular season, and a trophy will be given out to the winning school. In 1926, I established that the Dickinson Poll is going to name the national champion this year, but like in my 1924 video, I'm going to be doing my own polls, and I'm going to make a poll to start the college football season, also to start November, and a final one to go along with the Dickinson Poll that's going to be coming out at the end of this year. And let's start with my poll, and this will be using a lot of information from the Dickinson 1925 poll, but I will also change up a few things based on my own rankings and my own statistical analysis which there isn't a lot. But anyway, the number one team coming into 1926 has to be Michigan. They only lost once in 1925, but it was a terrible weather game where they lost 3-2. to two. They also didn't give up any other points during that whole regular season except for in that loss. So that's why this team really is the best. They would be having Fielding H. Yost back to coach them and also their best players and quarterback Benny Friedman and N. Benny Oosterbahn were back to make up for that crushing Northwestern loss. And they were ranked in the final Dickinson poll in 1925. They were tied at number two. 
Coming in at number two is Alabama. They were undefeated and won the Rose Bowl in 1925, but they would be bringing in a whole new team as more than half of that team from 1925 graduated. Key players such as Pooley Hubert were not back, but Alabama would be bringing back their best back in Herschel Caldwell, who you will be hearing about a little bit later. And they were tied at number two again in the Dickinson final 1925 poll. Number three is Dartmouth. They were unbeaten in 1924, and then they were undefeated in 1925. They were named as the retroactive Dickinson number one. They were named the national champion in 1925 by a bunch of sports writers, and they were beating teams by 30-plus points. This year, they would be without most of their great 1925 team, like their high-scoring quarterback, Andy Oberlander, so they won't be at the top of the poll for long. Number four to start the 1926 season is Colgate. They were 7-0-2 in 1925. They beat Pitt and Princeton, and they were number four in the Dickinson poll at the end of 1925. Their All-American halfback and team captain from 1925, Eddie Tryon, graduated and would be in the NFL, so matching their 1925 season and 1926 would be a little tough. And speaking of matching your 1925, it's going to be really tough for my number five team in Tulane. They were 9-0-1 in 1925. Their only tie was to Missouri, but they did beat Northwestern, who beat Michigan. They were named the number six team at the end of the 1925 season by the Dickinson Poll, and they would be bringing in a completely different team into 1926. But unlike Alabama, they didn't have the reserves. So this will be probably the most they will be talked about, as they would be 2-3-1 and one before November starts, and clearly they wouldn't be in my poll again. Number six is Notre Dame. They were 7-2-1 in 1925, and they were not ranked in the retroactive poll for 1925, as Notre Dame was slowly rebuilding their team after having that fantastic four-horseman team in 1924. They would have a strong line with some All-American selections, so you will be hearing about them a lot this season. Number seven is Pittsburgh. They were 8-1 and one in 1925. They were named the Dickinson number 10 team, but Pitt was always a top team coming into the season before World War II. They lost one of their best backs in Andy Gustafson, who later became a longtime Miami coach, but they did have Gibby Welsh running the ball for them, and he would also make some history for Pitt later in the season. Number eight is Army. They were 5-2-1 and one in 1925. They beat two of their biggest rivals in Notre Dame and Navy, but they were not ranked in the Dickinson poll, but like I've mentioned before on this channel, they were Army, who always had top teams and top players. They could get anyone they wanted. Example this year is going to be Bud Sprague, who played at Texas in 1924 and 1925, and would transfer to Army and eventually become an All-American this year. Number nine is Washington, who were 10-1-1 in 1925. They went to the Rose Bowl and lost. Also, they wouldn't be bringing back their best and top scorer in Wildcat Wilson this season, so they're probably not going to be in my poll for much longer, and they finished number seven at the end of the 1925 season in the Dickinson poll. And rounding out the top ten is a team you've heard about in my 1924 season, and you're going to be hearing about them a lot in 1926. This is Lafayette. They were 7-1-1 in 1925. The tie was to Colgate, but they would be bringing back most of their team from 1925, and they had their great coach Herb McCracken. 
for the third straight season, and they were ranked number 11 at the end of the 1925 season. And you can see the rest of the top 20 there. You can see Washington and Jefferson in there. They will be talked about this season. Also, Northwestern is in there. Stanford, Princeton, a whole bunch are in there. And speaking of Stanford, we are going to start with them as we start the season in September on September 25th. That was because they would play a doubleheader. First, they played Fresno, and they easily won 44-7. But then in their second game, they had some backups and freshmen playing, and they had a little scare against Caltech, who managed to stop their offense most of the game. But Stanford would still squeak by with a 13-6 win. And to kick off October, there wouldn't be anything too crazy, but Alabama would continue to sit on their throne as the best of the South. After being unbeaten in 1925 and winning the Rose Bowl in the game that changed the South, they were the kings of the South. But Vanderbilt was still a very good team, being 6-3 in 1925, but these two teams hadn't faced off since Vandy beat Bama in 1921. In this game in 1926, Bama would gain even more fame as they beat Vanderbilt pretty easily 19-7 to continue their unbeaten ways. Also happening this weekend was another team I wanted to mention that wasn't in my top 10 ranking, but had a big game, and that was Navy. Navy in 1926 was coming off a rebuilding year in 1925 when they went 5-2-1, but they weren't beating top teams like they did back in 1923 when they went to the Rose Bowl. Navy was coached by their first-year coach, Bill Ingram, who was a Navy alum and played from 1916 to 1918. After World War I, Ingram would move into coaching. He would inherit a very good team with a great line, led by unanimous All-American pick Frank Wickhorse. And they had a good running back in their back, Tom Hamilton, who would be a famous coach later on. Navy would start their schedule versus Purdue, and it would be their closest win of the season as they won 17-13 to start their season off right. And we're going to stick with Navy as we go to the second week in October as they would play a doubleheader as they would play Drake and Richmond. The Navy team had a large team, so they were able to play two games pretty much the same time as their first team played first versus Drake, which they won easily 24-7. And then their second team had an even easier game as they shut out Richmond. So now Navy were 3-0. and Also going on this weekend was out east as there was a big matchup in Pennsylvania between top 10 teams Lafayette and Pitt. Pitt were coming into this game not starting off that well, especially coming off of a very good 1925 season as they won their first game 9-7. And then in their second game, they only managed to get six points in a 6-6 tie versus Georgetown. Lafayette, meanwhile, were coming off of that very good 7-1-1 season where they actually beat every Pennsylvania team and they were looking to build off of that season. In addition, Lafayette were coached by a Pitt alum in Herb McCracken. And Lafayette under McCracken were doing quite well, as over the last two seasons, the team only lost three games. Plus, McCracken would start to do some things that now seem normal, but then really weren't one of which was a huddle. Most teams would take instructions from the coaches and then run it onto the field and call it out at the line. But instead, McCracken used the huddle to hide his instructions from the other team. This would help the team to be 2-0 and score over 30 points per game in those two games. And in this game versus Pitt, they wouldn't even need that many points as they shut out the poor Pitt offense 17 to nothing. And that big win would start most of the Eastern media to start looking at Lafayette as a top Eastern team this year. 
But October 16th would have an interesting game in New York City as Columbia tried to show their Eastern dominance as they invited Ohio State to play them at the Polo Grounds. Both teams were coming into the game without a loss, and this was the first time Ohio State had come to New York City. And Ohio State would make sure to make some headlines in their trip to New York City as they easily beat Columbia 32-7 and would continue to be unbeaten. And one final game of mention would also happen out east as Navy would play Princeton. And Princeton was coming off of a 5-1-1 season and had only lost to Navy one time in the 1920s. But they also tied twice, like they did in 1925. Princeton were led by Bill Roper, who coached them for the last decade plus, and also won the national title for Princeton. Princeton were not coming in with any All-American picks, but their talent was still there. But Navy would take over the game and easily won 27-13. to And I mention this game because it's going to look really good on Navy's record at the end of the season. October 23rd would start to see some bigger games and some top teams playing one another. One of those was on the East as Brown had their first big game as they played Yale. Brown were coming off of a 5-4 season and had a new coach in Tuss Laurie. Laurie was from Chicago who first went to Michigan State but then transferred to Pennsylvania College Westminster. He would graduate in 1914 and coach there until 1921 and then go to Amherst. At Amherst, he built up the team from a losing program to a winning one in four years. He would come into Brown and immediately start to play his system, which was finding the best players and have those players play the entire game. It was working, too, as Brown was 4-0 with three shutouts to start the year, while Yale were also undefeated at 3-0, but had beaten better teams like Georgia and Dartmouth. Laurie would play his first squad all 60 minutes, with no subs, and somehow Brown managed to outlast Yale 7 to nothing for a huge win. This next game would show who was the top of the Big Ten, as Michigan faced Illinois in Ann Arbor. The game would show how good Michigan's defense was this season, as Illinois were mostly playing in the shadow of their own goal line all game. Even though that was happening, Illinois was managing to stop Michigan all game, as all Michigan could get was a Benny Friedman field goal to be up 3 to nothing at half. But after half, Illinois could still do nothing, and Michigan added another Friedman field goal and a touchdown to win 13 to nothing. This dominating win would help Michigan in my rankings throughout the rest of the season. And I mention that because coming up October 30th, they would have another huge game. This would probably be one of the biggest games this year, as it pitted Michigan against Navy. This was a rematch of a 1925 game where Michigan destroyed Navy 54 to nothing. This year, though, was a little different, as both teams were undefeated, and in front of 80,000 fans in Baltimore, they saw a couple of firsts. They first saw Michigan give up their first touchdown since 1924, and also saw Michigan lose for the first time in over a year, and also get shut out for the first time in over four years. The final was Navy 10, Michigan nothing, and most of the Navy crowd rushed the field and tore the goalpost down. This was Navy's third top 20 win in a row, but this was the biggest and most dominating of those three. While that game was a big one across most of the country, this next game was a huge one for who would win the Pacific Coast Conference. Stanford and their 5-0 record would come to LA to play the 5-0 USC team, and this game would be one of the best of the year. First, USC would take over early as they outgained Stanford in the first quarter, 101 yards to one. 
but they got no points. The second quarter would see both teams score, with USC scoring two touchdowns to Stanford's one. Unfortunately, USC wouldn't be able to convert an extra point, so they would be up 12-6 to six at half. After half, Stanford would take the slight yard advantage and manage to score along with making the extra point to take a 13-12 lead into the final quarter. USC would have a few more chances but would get intercepted late and Stanford held on to win 13-12. USC had the yards advantage, but because of not being able to get that extra point, they lost this tough PCC game and pretty much would lose the Pacific Coast Conference because of this game. And one more game of mention before I get to my start of the November poll, and that was that Lafayette would face Washington and Jefferson. I mentioned this game as a redemption game for Lafayette, as Washington and Jefferson was their only loss in 1925. This game would also be pitting two undefeated teams. The game would start with an all-Washington and Jefferson advantage as they scored 10 points in the first quarter and took a 10-0 lead into the half. After half, Lafayette would slowly come back as they scored twice in the third quarter to be down 10-9. But in the final quarter, after a long run late, it would set them up for a last-minute touchdown to win 16-10. And on that note, let's get to my poll to start November. Navy is going to be number one. They pretty much have to be because they beat Michigan, Colgate, and Princeton in back-to-back weeks. All three of those teams are top 20 wins. And rounding out the top 10 is a team I haven't talked about a lot. That would be Missouri. They are 3-0-2, but they did beat Nebraska and West Virginia on the road, so they will sneak into my top 10. You see Brown in my top 20 team. You will see them later on in the poll. They are 6-0 currently, but the rest of the schedule isn't that good, so that's why I had to place them just outside the top 10. Kicking off November with the games on November 6th, which was probably one of the most inconsequential weekends of all the weeks I have done in this series. There were no big games on Saturday, November 6th, and all the top teams that played easily won. Now, you'll see this a lot if you look back in the 1920s and 1930s, and that was a game that would happen on Armistice Day, which is November 11th. This was before World War II and Veterans Day, and USC would play on this day as they played Oregon State. Oregon State were undefeated at this point, but would finally get beaten by USC, which would give USC a big win after that crushing loss to Stanford a couple of weeks ago. But after that inconsequential week, November 13th would have all of the important and biggest games of 1926 for some reason. The first one would be having two top five teams battling in New York City. Army was 6-0 with four shutouts, and Notre Dame was coming in 6-0 with five shutouts. And due to that, 63,000 people jam-packed Yankee Stadium to see it. Since both teams had great defenses, we didn't see much scoring. But Notre Dame did manage to get in the end zone once, and that was all they needed to win 7 to nothing. The game continued Notre Dame's streak of shutouts to now five games in a row. The Ohio State-Michigan game would also happen this week. Ohio State were 6-0, and winning this game would possibly help them win the Big Ten. Ohio State would jump out to a 10-0 lead, but Michigan would quickly tie it up. Michigan would then take the lead back in the fourth quarter to be up 17-10. Ohio State would then drive down late in the game, score a touchdown, but on the extra point attempt, it was missed, and Michigan was able to drain out the clock and win by one, 17-16. 
Also, quickly want to mention some more games of note happening down in the South. Vanderbilt would beat the previously undefeated Tennessee 20-3. This game would put both teams at 7-1 just behind Alabama. Also happening out West, Stanford would have another Pacific Coast Conference hurdle to face in Washington. Washington had lost to Washington State, but beat Cal just last week and could ruin Stanford's perfect season this week and maybe finish second in the PCC. But that wouldn't happen, as Stanford would easily win 29-10 and continue their undefeated season. One more game of note was happening out east with my top team, Navy, as they beat Georgetown, but only 10-7. Now, you might think Georgetown isn't a good win, but they were actually pretty good this year, as they only were coming into the game with one loss and would only finish with two losses on the year and seven wins. But now we are getting close to the end of the season. It is November... It is the weekend of November 20th, which would have the Big Ten finale. Michigan would play Minnesota and would skate by with a 7-6 win. Northwestern would play Iowa and win. And because both of these teams didn't play and both were 5-0 in the Big Ten, they would share the title. The biggest Big Ten game of weekend, though, was between two top ten teams in my poll, as Ohio State would travel to Illinois, and after a tough game, Ohio State would squeak by with their own 7-6 win. Ohio State would finish second in the Big Ten, as their only loss in the season was versus Michigan by one point. Army and Navy both won as they got ready for their Thanksgiving weekend matchup in Chicago, and Brown would win again as the Ironmen of Brown beat New Hampshire to be 9-0, but give up some points, ruining their four-game stretch of giving up no points. But let's head out west as Stanford would have their final game as they played rival Cal in Berkeley. Cal was going through a very down year this year as they had five losses already, and they were nothing like they had been at the beginning of the decade. The biggest reason for that was that their head coach for the last 10 years, Andy Smith, died on January 8, 1926, shortly after the 1925 season. Smith was in Philadelphia around New Year's Eve, and I'm not sure of the reason, but he was very well known in the city since he coached Penn from 1909 to 1912. Smith would get sick in Philly just around the new year and die of pneumonia shortly after. Smith does get the credit, and deservedly so, for making Cal the first real Western power. To replace Smith, California would make their successful basketball coach their football coach in Nibs Price. Cal was not the power they had been, and Nibs Price was going through a 3-5 and five season, but this game was the big game, so a lot of people still thought that Cal would give them a game, but they didn't, as Stanford easily won 41-6 to end their season 10-0 and win the Pacific Coast Conference. But the November 27th weekend would prove to be the weekend that would define this season. And I'm going to start it off with Army and Navy, which would be playing in Chicago. And I have mentioned that first because that game would have a particularly important guest. That guest was Notre Dame head coach Newt Rockney. He had beaten Army earlier in the season, but wanted to watch Navy as they were the other team that many around the country thought should be the national champion. Now, I'm going to say in Newt Rockney's defense, he wasn't the only top coach there. But still, this decision is talked about 100 years later for good reason. And I'll get to that just shortly. In the Army-Navy game, he would see a back-and-forth game, ending in a 21-21 tie. This would ruin Navy's perfect season, ending them at 9-0-1, while Army was 7-1-1. While that Army-Navy game was going on, Notre Dame was actually in Pittsburgh playing Carnegie Tech. 
Yes, Carnegie Tech were actually not that bad. They were 6-2 and two and had played some Eastern teams pretty well this year, but that didn't matter, as the media didn't give them much of a chance. The game was played in Pittsburgh, in Forbes Field, on a snowy, cold, and gray November afternoon. Notre Dame had only given up points in one game this season, and Notre Dame were looking towards the national championship, with only two games remaining as they played Carnegie Tech and then Southern Cal. Notre Dame was such a heavy favorite in this game that rumors flowed out of South Bend that head coach Newt Rockney planned to leave the first string at home to rest them for the Southern Cal game. The record shows that Notre Dame's first team did make the trip, but Rockney would not since he was in Chicago, and he left the team in the hands of his top assistants. When the game started, it seemed like Newt Rockney not being there wasn't too bad, as Carnegie Tech couldn't score, but neither could Notre Dame. The Irish's plan was to use their second team to build the confidence of its opponent before rushing their top 11 on the field for the kill. The plan would go the opposite, though, as Carnegie Tech toyed with Notre Dame's backups before shocking their first team in the second quarter. Carnegie Tech would have two touchdown runs to lead 13 to nothing at half. In the second half, word had not gotten to Newt Rockney in Chicago, since, again, there weren't a lot of telephones, there wasn't the internet, so really no one could tell him what was going on until the game was over. So Notre Dame's assistants didn't switch up the game plan, and this wouldn't help, as Carnegie Tech would add on two field goals to be up 19 to nothing before Notre Dame got close to scoring in the fourth quarter. But Carnegie Tech would stop them on the goal line to finish the shocking upset. And this upset is routinely named as one of the biggest upsets in college football history, since again, Notre Dame had only given up one touchdown all season, and now they lost 19 to nothing. And not only one of the most shocking upsets in college football history, but one of the biggest coaching blunders in college football history, because they didn't change up their game plan even at halftime when they were down. So it's really deserved that Notre Dame lost this. Along with that big upset, another undefeated team almost got knocked off, as Brown would be able to hold off Colgate and tie at 10. The tie would end Brown's magical season at 9-0-1, and Brown would never have another unbeaten season again. So now we are in December, and after that crazy weekend, it was pretty well set that the Rose Bowl would be between Alabama and Stanford. The game would be pitting the top two teams that were undefeated and untied, and after Navy tied and Notre Dame lost, the Rose Bowl would name the national champion in everyone's eyes, except for mine, and I'll get to that in a moment. There would be one more game as Notre Dame would come to L.A. for their yearly trip to see USC. This may be yearly now, but in 1926, this game was the first time they would be playing. And when this game was scheduled, it was assumed that Notre Dame would be the top team, as would USC. So it would help in their argument for the national title. But after Notre Dame's shocking loss and USC losing to Stanford, this would not be for the national title. The game would turn out to be a great one. And after that embarrassing loss the week previous, Newt Rockney pushed his Notre Dame squad to squeak out a 13-12 win to end their season 9-1, while USC ended 9-2 with both losses by one point and by matching 13-12 scores. Let's get to the Rose Bowl, which happened just hours after the 1927 year started, and it was in front of 68,000 people, and it saw a great game. Alabama were looking to win a repeat Rose Bowl title after last year's game that changed the South, and they were also looking to win the national title again. But it started with all Stanford, as they scored first and held that lead throughout most of the game. But after getting stopped late and being forced to
to punt, that punt would end badly as Stanford blocked it and got the ball on the 14-yard line with a minute to go. Alabama would only take four plays to score to make it 7-6. to six. And since there was no two-point conversion or overtime, Stanford's only hope was to block the point after attempt. But Alabama's line made sure to block, and Herschel Caldwell's extra point kick was good, so it was tied at 7 This game really could have used a two-point conversion or overtime because this resulted in quite a bit of an argument to see who was the national champion. So to solve that, I'm going to go back to the Dickinson poll, which came out just after the Rose Bowl and awarded the national championship of college football with the Riesman Trophy. The metrics were close for all of the teams, but it was clear that this poll was not favorable to Southern teams, especially Alabama, which was not even in the top five. They were at number seven. The Dickinson poll would name Stanford the national champion, finishing closely ahead of Navy. But my final poll would be slightly different, and for one, I wouldn't have named Stanford the national champion. Instead, my national champion has to be Navy. They were 9-0-1. They beat top five team Michigan. They gave Princeton their only loss. The tie to Army kind of muddied their season, as they had the best schedule in my eyes, and they were unbeaten. Stanford is going to be number two for me at 10-0-1. Their schedule was a lot better than in my previous episode of 1924, and they might have had a slightly better schedule than Alabama, as they did beat and play USC. They also beat Cal and Washington. And again, Alabama just slightly coming in at third. This team had six shutouts. They played and beat Vanderbilt, who were a top 20 team. Plus, they beat Georgia. And there was no question that they were the best team in the South. I just wish their schedule was a little bit better. Michigan is going to be number four at seven and one, and their schedule was pretty good as gave Ohio State their only loss, plus they beat Minnesota, which is a top 25 win too. I wish, wish they would have played Northwestern this year. Coming in at number five, just behind them is going to be Notre Dame. That loss to Carnegie Tech was extremely devastating because they would have been the national champion. The schedule was really good as they beat top 20 team Army and USC, plus they had seven shutouts out of nine wins, which is insane. Lafayette is going to be my number six team because they were 9-0. They do have two pretty good top 20 wins as they beat Pittsburgh and Washington and Jefferson, but otherwise the schedule is kind of poor. Ohio State's going to be just behind them at number seven. At 7-1, they beat Illinois and Columbia, so two good wins, and their only loss was to Michigan by one point, so they are rated much higher than my number eight team, which is Brown, who were unbeaten, but they really only have two good wins, as they beat Yale and Dartmouth, both of which were 4-4, so not really that great, and they were really dominant over their schedule as they shut out seven teams, but again, it wasn't the best schedule. Number nine is going to be USC. They are 9 two. They only had two losses by one point, which is just incredible. And both of them were to top 10 teams. They won all nine games by three touchdowns or more. So they were dominant and they could have been the national champion if they would have just made an extra point. And rounding out the top 10 is a surprising team, and that's going to be Carnegie Tech. They do have some really good wins, like over Notre Dame in a dominant fashion. Plus, they shut out top 20 team Pitt. They also beat West Virginia. And their two losses are to two top 25 teams in my poll in NYU and Washington and Jefferson. And you can see some of the other top 25 teams below. I'm going to mention Haskell real quick. You can check them out in my list of best teams before World War II. They had a great player in Miles 
Nicholas McLean, who had 38 rushing touchdowns. I go over him and my best players before World War II, so you can check him out. They played a lot of smaller Midwestern schools, with the biggest school they played was Boston College, who they tied. So I can't put them in the top 10, even though they had so many wins. But there you go. There is how the year was won, 1926. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and joining me on this journey. If you want to tell me who should have been the national champion that season, please tell me in the comments below. Also, if you like this video, please give it a like. Also, share it with a college football fan. And of course, as always, make sure you subscribe to the channel, ring the bell for new updates, and I will be seeing you again in the future. Have a great day.